of refugees or people who have had refugee experiences don't always share what can be very difficult stories and quite often not telling those stories or bottling up your experiences can do a lot of harm. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. At age 30, Tim Sudpomasan was appointed Australia's Race Discrimination Commissioner. It was an extraordinary appointment, but Tim's no ordinary person. Born in France to Chinese and Lao parents, he grew up in Sydney, where he did his undergraduate at Sydney University. He then completed a PhD in political theory at Oxford University, wrote regular columns for the Australian newspaper, and has authored four books, Reclaiming Patriotism, Nation Building for Australian Progressives, Don't Go Back to Where You Came From, Why Multiculturalism Works, The Virtuous Citizen, Patriotism in a Multicultural Society, and I'm Not Racist But. He's now coming to the end of his five-year appointment, the final day of which will be August the 19th. And it's a delight to have him on the Good Life podcast today to talk about race in Australia. Well, great to be with you, Andrew, and thanks for the very generous and kind introduction. So tell me how your parents made their way to, to France. They fled Laos uh, during, the, during the conflict? That's right. They, they went to France in 1975. There was a communist takeover in that country in that year, and they left there as refugees. I went to Thailand, spent some time in a refugee camp just across the border and across the Mekong before making their way to France, where they eventually settled in Montpellier in the southern part of France, and that was where I was born. How did that experience shape them? How, do they, how, did, how did they parent differently as a result of that scarring experience of having to, to flee their country? Well, very, very traumatic for them to leave their country and to put things into perspective. My parents didn't tell their parents that they were leaving because of possible ramifications if the parents knew that they were fleeing. Yes. So my mother never saw her father again. So her father passed away uh, in, in the 1980s, but she never got the chance to see him again and never got to physically say goodbye to him. So I think back to their experience and I know it was a very traumatic and challenging time for them to pick up uh, your life uh, with very little material possessions, then cross the border into a refugee camp and then to go to a, another country where you don't know anyone is a big jump to make. Uh, and uh, I think the way it's shaped their own parenting is uh, I've always been close to them and, and they've always uh, tried to, 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 to be a part of, of my life and I suspect part of that has to do with uh, their own experience and, and, and the, uh, the, the fact that in my mother's case she never got to, to say goodbye to her father. Did they talk much about that experience while you were growing up or was it something that sort of stayed buried? No, they talked about it, and it was important for me to know about their experience. Uh, so uh, I, I was told, for example, about the exact manner in which they, 
they left Laos. In the case of my father, he uh, crossed the, the river in a boat and halfway through uh, the trip, and this is a little, uh, a, a little uh, rowboat essentially going across the, the river, um, he was fired upon by uh, guards. So he had to jump out of the boat and swim the other half of his uh, trip over to, to Thailand. Uh, in my mother's case, uh, she went from Laos to Thailand with the assistance of someone who I suppose could be described as a people smuggler. Um, she paid someone to take her over there and, and when she landed on the other side, she uh, had a contact or someone was arranged to, to, to meet her and then take her to the refugee camp. So uh, from those details to the experiences they had in the few months that they had in the refugee camp to their initial experience in arriving in France and their time uh, trying to get acclimatised to French life. Um, this was part of my childhood growing up and part of the family history that they passed on to me. And I'm, I'm, and I'm grateful for that because a lot of refugees or people who have had refugee experiences don't always share what can be very difficult stories. And quite often not telling those stories or bottling up your experiences can do a lot of harm. Uh, we know that a lot of people with difficult family histories can be prone to things like depression or anxiety or may have family relationships that aren't healthy because, yes. because yeah. they don't talk about such things. So uh, I guess it was an early lesson for me in how important it is that you can be open about your experiences with your loved ones because if you can't do that with your loved ones, no matter how hard or traumatic something might be, um, you, 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 you're going to live with a lot of things bottled up in your life. So then when you're uh, only a couple of years old, they choose to leave France and come to Australia. What, what precipitated that? Uh, my mother had family here in Australia. So one of her sisters, uh, who also left Laos as a refugee, ended up being resettled in Sydney. And uh, as I mentioned, my parents didn't know anyone in France, no family members there, no family friends mm. there. So very isolating experience, uh, perhaps compounded too by the, the approach that the French took to resettling their refugee intake. Uh, they consciously distributed their refugee intake across the country so that uh, people wouldn't be concentrated in any one place. Mm. So while, for example, quite a few thousand uh, Lao people were taken to, to France and were resettled there, they didn't actually congregate in any one spot. So from their perspective, it was a relatively isolating experience. Uh, they also struggled to gain French citizenship even though they had been there for 10 years. And the, the, the way they told it to me was uh, it wasn't out of any lack of desire on their part to be part of French society, but uh, whenever they filled in the forms, the forms would uh, get lost or they wouldn't hear back. So they, mm. uh, I think, were discouraged by some of that and the combination of those factors led them to come to Australia sight unseen in 1985. And uh, you've talked about the distribution of, uh, of migrants across France. Uh, they then uh, came to Cabramatta, is that, right? is that right? One of the places in Australia that's had some of the highest concentrations of new migrants? Well, not, not far from Cabramatta. So when we first arrived, we moved in with my aunt in Karama, which is the suburb between Villawood and Cabramatta. 
So uh, my aunt uh, came to Sydney and, and obviously was uh, housed in the Villawood Migrant Hostel when she came. And, and if you look at who uh, lived around the area, there was a big population of Vietnamese, Cambodian and Lao refugees who would have first found themselves in the Villawood Migrant Hostel and then when they moved out they would have settled not far from there. And that was the case in my aunt's experience and, and we moved into her uh, flat in, in Karamar for a few months before we then uh, moved out into Cabramatta into a townhouse and then subsequently Canley Vale where I grew up for mm. a few years before we then moved just up the road to Bonnie Rig Heights. Did you? How did you get interested in race? Was that, does that go back to your uh, to your childhood? It's hard to pinpoint my interest in in race, uh, but I, I, I suppose I've always had a an acute sense of who I am and 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 of racial difference as well. Uh, maybe it's the fact that we have a very long surname that is is not always easy to pronounce or is unfamiliar to. To many people, um, uh, didn't occur to me until a few years ago when uh, someone actually said to me that you seem to have such a, a, a an acute sense of your cultural difference. And when I thought about it, I, I guess I'm reminded of it almost every day through through something like my name, uh, because um, that is a marker of who I am and my difference. Uh, and not many people necessarily know how to go about pronouncing my name correctly, which you would uh, never get through a day without someone mispronouncing. Yeah, and and, and and I'm not I'm not and I'm not finding fault with people for that. I'm just explaining mm. the reason why I think about these these things and these issues in in the same way that you know if you're if you're the only person in a small town or uh, or village who is from a a, a different background compared to everyone else, you're going to be aware of mm. that difference. Um, so for me, it's just a very basic lived reality. But um, to to give you a fuller sense of things, when I was growing up in Sydney in the 1980s, there was a lot of debate about Asian immigration at the time. There was also, in the 1990s, a lot of uh, concern about Asian crime and and, and drugs around Cabramatta, um, and those were issues that I couldn't escape in in my own daily life and in growing up and, and in trying to make sense of of who I am. Um, uh, but I, I also have a keen sense of justice and a keen sense of equality. So uh, for me, racism, if it does exist or if someone does experience it, um, is is an assault. It's an assault on our values of justice and equality, and more fundamentally, it's an assault on another fellow human being and fellow citizen. You went to uh, Hurlston Agricultural uh, High School. Uh, did you uh, did you experience the hurling of stones? Did you experience uh, some some level of uh, racism in the in the school? Well, there were, there were moments. Uh, I mean, I I think everyone who goes through high school uh, will have testing moments. Uh, and I dare say there'd be uh, very few of us who were uh, unscarred or unmarred by our experience in high school as adolescents coming of age. And f for me, going to Hulston Agricultural, which is in Glenfield and not far from Campbelltown in southwest Sydney, was 
quite a cultural shock for me because I went from being in a primary school where about 85% of the students there would have been of an Asian background uh, and I went to a school where there were only a handful of Asian kids in what was a largely Anglo-Celtic school population. And moreover, it was a school population of which a third would have been boarders primarily from country regions in New South Wales. Right. Training um, ground for farmers. Correct. I mean, that's why it's an agricultural high school. It's part of its history. So I remember going to, to school and feeling uh, quite conscious about myself and feeling um, not necessarily out of place, but fully aware that I was different from many of the other uh, students around me. Um, you know, and, and it goes to little things like the kind of school bags you were carrying. Now, I'd, I'd never heard of um, Billabong or Rip Curl before as brands, but these seemed to be the, the bags that all the other kids um, had with them. Um, all the other kids were really good swimmers. I was an awful swimmer. <laughs> um, uh, so all, all these little things, right, um, just adding up to, uh, to, to my own experience. But going, going more directly to your question, uh, there were occasions when I heard epithets or slurs being used. Uh, and for the first, you know, there were some words I hadn't heard of before, which I heard for the first time when I was in high school. And at the time too, there were uh, kids who believed that Asians should get out of the country. And this was a sentiment that was sometimes aired, if not directly to me, then certainly within earshot. Mm. Uh, so the, these were things that, that I encountered. And I also saw things that, happened to some other students so you know we we had a Sikh background student in 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 school who arrived in year eight and he 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 was there for only one or two years Uh, but I remember the the really nasty bullying that was uh, dealt out to him because he had a turban so you know kids trying to grab his turban and ripping it off yes Um, even in one case a teacher telling uh, this boy to take his hat off. Um, so I remember that. Um, and I also remember not saying anything or not feeling that I could do anything to help him and, and also feeling the pressure that when kids were picking on, um, on him that there was an unspoken expectation that you had to choose a side and, and you either went along with it or you could have also... Uh, put your own hand up to be picked on as well. And that was a really early insight into how racism can work and to the psychology of insiders and outsiders and the the motivations that people may have if they do decide to pick on someone. Do you regret not standing up or do you think it would have just been too dangerous to do in that setting as somebody who was themselves a, a minority? Yeah. I wish I'd had the courage to stand up, um, but I didn't. And I look at what happened then and look at my work now and, and part of me thinks, well, you know, maybe this is, uh, this is me trying to make up for some of what happened because I, I still feel awful um, not, not responding or turning a blind eye to it. Yeah, but no more awful than anybody else in that situation should have should Yeah, have, should I mean, have I, wasn't, I wasn't dealing uh, it out to him. I think it would have been worse if I were dealing, and, uh, dealing it out to, to other people. But, um, you know... I reflect on that and I think of the the courage that's required um, and if I'm perfectly honest with what happened at the time, I just didn't have the courage. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I remember similarly 
friends of mine when they got their driver's licence would uh, uh, have this game where when they saw an Asian driver in the car, they would just follow them. Um, they weren't engaging in uh, malicious activity, they didn't try and ram the car, they didn't try and get out of the car, but they would just follow this person because they were Asian. And I remember hearing them describe it, but not stepping, not, not saying that's nasty and horrible and deeply wrong and uh, I'm not going to be your friend if you don't stop it. I just remember letting it, letting it go and, mm. and regret deeply not, mm. uh, not, not saying something yeah. in that. And, and, and I think we, we've all had this before, right? Uh, and, and, and for me, part of getting things better on race is, is about having some vulnerability and some humility about this because very often we get defensive mm. about things or we are very reluctant to admit that we might have done something that was wrong or short of the mark. Uh, we've just got to be more honest about things and understand too that before you can step up and respond, it does require you to think about it mm. and it requires you to harden your resolve because... The easy way to respond is not to respond. That's the path of least resistance because no one wants to pick a fight with someone or no one wants to put themselves in the middle of something unless they have to. But uh, it's, it's like what, what's, what's been said by others. Um, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept and I think that's true on race. Yeah, and particularly when it's uh, aimed as, as being a joke and, and you're sort of seen as, as the wet blanket for uh, stepping forward and saying, no, actually, that's a, that's mm. a racist and, joke. And, and I hear this all, uh, all the time, right, that, that people say, oh, it's just, we're just having a laugh. What, why, are you, why are you killing the fun or why can't you just take a joke? Um, and that can be a cop-out sometimes. That can be an excuse. Um, I mean, it's one thing, for example, if you were to joke with a friend of yours that you've known for 20 years and your best mates in which case I suspect you'd have a certain licence to call someone um, a name or, or, or do something and know that, and, and mm. they may know that it's coming from a, a place of affection. But if you're doing it to a stranger or you're doing it to someone not out of affection but out of mischief or, mm. or, or, or with a desire to belittle them or put them in their place, then that's a different uh, category of conduct altogether. Yeah. Did you, to what extent did you uh, try to fit in or appreciate the differences? I mean, did you, uh, uh, did, did you pack veg Vegemite sandwiches? Did you have tra traditional Laotian food? Did you end up buying that billabong backpack that you mentioned before? No, I, ne I, never, I never got any billabong or rip curl t-shirts or, or backpacks. So uh, that, that didn't happen. And I confess I'm not the biggest fan of Vegemite, which sounds horrendously <laughs> un-Australian, Andrew. Um, but uh, but my wife, for what it's worth, loves her Vegemite and so does my son. <laughs> so I'm in the minority there again. Uh, uh, what I did find uh, being in that school was was that uh, uh, I, I, if, if I copped any uh, hostility from, from anyone in those years, it, it actually was motivation for me to, to be better. And uh, I resolved pretty early in those years at high school that um, I wanted to leave high school uh, speaking English better than anyone else there, particularly those who were dealing out racial insults, and that I would know more about Australian history than everyone else. Um, so it actually uh, pushed me to think about things much more deeply than I otherwise would, because I always wanted to uh, be able to say to someone, well, 
uh, you don't have me on that because uh, I know exactly what you're talking about and uh, I'm on top of this. Yes, I remember Benjamin Law making a similar comment to me when I was uh, chatting with him. It's uh, just rolling his eyes when people would suggest that uh, his English wasn't as good as theirs. Uh, He's one of the most beautiful wordsmiths Australia has and uh, no one one held a candle to to Ben on uh, on the quality of his writing. Yeah, but but it it did require me to think very uh, consciously about this because Mm. um, I remember, for example, in year seven or eight, and doing a comprehension test, having a passage in a test in English. And, uh, and, and I wasn't a particularly good English student at the time. I was, I was decent at maths and science, uh, but I would have been midway in the year out of 150 in my first year or two of English. And it actually took me a lot of hard work to make my way up to, to yeah. somewhere closer to the top of the year by the time I finished high school. Um, but some of that's got to do with the, uh, the, the conversations you have with your parents or what your parents bring to the, to the conversations mm. you have. Um, I didn't have the luxury of being able to go back to, to home, for example, and over the dinner table discuss English literature with my parents because they wouldn't have read any of the texts that we were set at school. Um, I couldn't go back and share with them Shakespeare and have them explain to me, uh, you know, the, the meaning of Hamlet or, or Othello or t- for them to explain to me different allusions that Shakespeare might have used. Uh, so I had to start at a very basic level and teach myself a, a better English vocabulary. So what I used to do was I used to and just get out the dictionary and just find words that I didn't know and, and just make a note of them. Um, but that was all because, you know, I didn't understand some words in a very basic vocabulary and comprehension test when I was a high school student. I didn't know what lynching meant. Right. I couldn't answer the question. Um, others in the year somehow managed to, to get the answer right when uh, the question was posed. Um, but I drew a blank. I had no idea what lynching involved, um, but I obviously do now. What language did, did your parents speak at home? Laotian, French, Chinese, English? Uh, we spoke Lao at home, okay. uh, but there was also a healthy dollop of French. So sometimes there was a mixture of Lao and French mm. that we would speak at home, but I, I grew up speaking Lao as my first language, uh, French uh, I grew up in the first three years of my life in particular speaking uh, speaking French uh, more or less as a first language as well because we, uh, we would have spoken both languages in, in France but I, I, I did lose a lot of my French when I came to Australia. So then you uh, studied at Sydney University. What was, your, what was your degree there? I started off as a law student. So I enrolled in a, in a combined law degree with economics and social sciences as my other component but I never finished my law degree so uh, I did three years of it uh, stopped or deferred to do an honours year in 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 my other degree which was in uh, government or political science and then I never went back to complete it because I I, I had a job offer and uh, my heart wasn't in the law. And then you went off to to Oxford how did your time living in Balliol College make you think differently about uh, about Australia? Mm, well, I guess it's a case of what do they of Australia know if only Australia they know. Uh, 
uh, my sense of Australianness, if anything, was was accentuated when I went to England and my time there was it was a great time it was a time where I learned a lot about myself but it was also a time for me to reflect on my own cultural Mm. identity and how I uh, fit into Australian society and the kind of contribution I wanted to make to Australia as well Uh, and I, I went over there to do a master's degree which evolved into a doctorate but uh, for me, in 2005, when the Cronulla riot occurred, uh, that crystallised for me what I knew my research for the next few years was going to be about. And that was about the meaning of patriotism and how you deal with ideas of national identity and multicultural difference. So how, what, what did you end up concluding from those, uh, the, those, those writings? How do you encapsulate what you what you began to think of as a kind of ideal Australian uh, patriotism? The starting point was to respond to this notion that patriotism was was a form of racism. Uh, this was my understanding of things from the, from the UK watching at a distance. Uh, I found that a lot of progressive voices in the Australian debate didn't want a bar of patriotism or, uh, or suggested that uh, any national pride was prone to encouraging bigotry or jingoism. Uh, I found that a dangerous idea because I, I believe that if you start defining your national symbols or your national identity as being extremist, then you're, then you're, you're engaging in an exercise of self-fulfilling prophecy. You end up handing over uh, the national identity to extremists. Um, so for me to uh, crystallise what, what I mean by all this, it was, it was the idea that those uh, at Cronulla who were waving the Australian flag, um, screaming slogans like, uh, love it or leave it, uh, uh, this idea that they were true patriots was offensive to me. Uh, I, I don't believe that they should have had exclusive ownership mm. of the Australian national identity. Uh, if anything, patriotism can be a good thing in my view. Uh, if you think of what patriotism must mean, it means a love of your country. But if you love your country, you should seek to improve it and you should seek to realise the best of your country's traditions and merits. And for me, being Australian isn't something defined by race or ethnicity. I think of the kind of country we are today and the changes we've seen over many decades of immigration. We see a largely welcoming and generous country. We see a country that has a strong sense of fairness and equality. We don't always live up to those values, but if we are patriotic, then we should try and work to ensure that we live up to those standards as much as we can. It sounds very much like the George Orwell distinction between patriotism, the love of country, and nationalism, the notion that your country is better than all the others. In one sense, it is. Uh, in, in another sense, it isn't, because I also believe that a love of country uh, is something that uh, overlaps with an identification with your nation. Um, so I, I guess the kind of patriotism that I... Uh, advocated for or wrote in defence of was a national Mm. mode of patriotism. 
Um, and without getting too technical, there'd be others who would say that well, a love of country shouldn't be married to the nation state. It should just be something more naturalistic, for example, mm. that it's about mm. your love of the landscape of a place or the environment. Or others would say it should be a political affection that uh, is not tied to the nation, that it's something that uh, can only genuinely exist in the form of uh, republics with a small r or in city-states. Um, so I, I, I don't necessarily agree with, with those readings of patriotism. So for me, nationalism and patriotism can overlap and the question isn't to choose either patriotism or nationalism. Uh, in my view, there are good patriotisms and, and not so good patriotisms and there are inclusive forms of nationalisms and there are uh, divisive and dangerous forms of nationalisms as well. So then you're back in Australia, you've got a couple of uh, books under your belt and you're appointed at uh, age 30 as the Race Discrimination Commissioner. Uh, what, are you, what are your memories of, uh, of starting into, into that job? Uh, uh, it, it was a big change for me because I was a, an academic prior to, to taking on the role and most of my days would have been spent on my own reading, thinking and, and writing and I really didn't need to speak to anyone unless I wanted to or I had to. Whereas in this job, a lot of my time is, is spent speaking to people, uh, communicating or, or, or working with, with staff, giving speeches um, and you don't have the luxury of being able to just sit and reflect on something in a scholarly way so that, that was a big uh, change for me but but one that I got used to very quickly and, and I had to and, and I really had to get on top of things very quickly uh, indeed in this job because there were there were many big issues that we had to tackle straight away in 2013. Um, it also meant that I had to use some of that abandoned legal training that I had and um, and it was a good thing that uh, I learnt a bit about statutory interpretation and how to read laws when I was a law student because in, in this role you're the guardian of a piece of legislation and you've got to understand that uh, piece of law back to front and uh, and they were some of the things that I had to, to do straight away in the job. What are you proudest of looking back over the five, nearly five years in the, in the role? I'm I'm proud of giving voice to communities' sentiment and views on racial equality, multiculturalism and the Racial Discrimination Act itself because we've had five years of more or less non-stop debate and contest about the legislation, in particular Section 18C of the Act and and uh, the and 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 the balance between freedom of speech and freedom from racial vilification. Uh, I've been staunchly of the view that the law shouldn't be changed, and uh, have always believed that attempts to change the law were a dangerous proposition. Uh, but standing with the different indigenous and first peoples communities and groups with the different ethnic communities around the country and indeed with Australians of goodwill who believe in racial equality is the thing that I'm most proud of because we mm. uh, had to speak up in defence of racial equality and in defence of the legislation 
and there have been two attempts to change the law and uh, neither of those attempts succeeded. Um, the law is still there and it still continues to give protection to any Australian who experiences racial discrimination and hatred. Has it made you more or less optimistic about race relations in Australia? I mean, you would see a lot of the, the worst of, uh, of, of racial mistreatment in Australia. Has that uh, soured your view of, uh, of the quality of Australian multiculturalism, or are you as optimistic as you were? Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic by nature, which isn't to say that I'm, I'm a Pollyanna. Uh, I think I'm, I'm always cautiously optimistic about things. What I find is that you've got to separate the noise that we see in media and public debates from the considered reality of our society. The, the voices we often hear in media and public discussions about race uh, aren't necessarily representative or reflective. Mm. Um, so I, I think of what um, mainstream Australia thinks about issues of race and I find that there is a healthy majority of people uh, who would support multiculturalism. And, and we know this from, from the facts. You know, there are no alternative facts on people's support for multiculturalism. We know that between 83 and 86% of people believe multiculturalism is good for the country. And that's, year on, that's a year-on-year year finding in, in, in surveys and research that is done you know, with the highest standards of rigour. Um, we know as well that about 80% of people believe it should continue to be the case that we do not discriminate on the basis of ethnicity or religion in how we conduct our immigration policy. And we know as well that about 80% of people support our current laws on racial vilification at the Commonwealth level. Um, you look at a picture like that and I think you see a truer reflection of our sentiment on race than what you, you would find if you were to, say, look at some of the, the media coverage or media commentary. Mm on an issue of race. So, so I, begin, I begin with that view, um, but I'm also aware that this is a more challenging time for us on race relations. It's a challenging time for many countries on this issue because you have the resurgence of the far right and racial supremacists. We know that the Trump presidency in the United States has had a profound effect in emboldening extremists. Uh, we see that there are many governments in Europe, for example, that are now in coalition with far-right governments. Uh, indeed, there are some governments that themselves have agendas which are, are quite stridently anti-immigrant and can be characterised reasonably as uh, robustly nationalist in character. Uh, so things are getting uh, testy, but I believe we're in a position of strength to deal with this. But we can't in any way be complacent and the challenge is always for good citizens to continue speaking up. Um, you know, it's that old idea of how the, uh, the, the price of, uh, of eternal, of eternal um, freedom or the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, right? Um, you've always got to be on your toes and you can't allow any normalisation of racism or bigotry because once you start giving licence to that, you just don't know where it ends up. Mm. Yeah, I share your sort of generally dour view on uh, the way in which many parts of the world are going, though I was uh, greatly heartened by the Malaysian election results, uh, that country breaking free of, of such a, 
uh, a stultifying race-based politics that's dominated it for uh, for so many years. And, and sometimes a um, change comes very quickly. You won't see it coming. Yeah, uh, yeah. And 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 you've got to be attuned to what's happening on the ground in any society, and and really keeping a close ear to the everyday conversations that people have. Um, hmm. and, and I just don't pick up in, in many of the conversations I have the, the sorts of conversations that we see at uh, the national level in, in, in some of our public debates. Yeah. Now, you've, uh, you've spoken eloquently about uh, culinary equality. Uh, what's your view of, uh, uh, of people who uh, use or, or, or of the, uh, uh, the use of food multiculturalism as a, as a metaphor for Australian multiculturalism. Well, I've I got to make one thing clear, which is that I, I, I think modern multicultural Australia uh, it has great food, and that's a great thing. Uh, and, and, and we shouldn't for a moment uh, feel bad about the choices of culinary delights that we have in this country. Um, but sometimes we can take it a bit too far and, and believe that because we... You know, because we we like food from different parts of the world, that we understand different cultures very well, and we can't therefore be racist or intolerant. Um, the the kind of idea here is this retort that sometimes given when you do call out you know, prejudice or racism, and people say there's there's no way in the world that I can be racist because I like Thai food and I eat Chinese food every week. Um, I think that kind of misses the the point, and it misses the point too to believe that people's differences can just be distilled into uh, a culinary style mm. or into dishes. Um, that to me doesn't quite do justice to people's real cultural heritage and cultural differences. Uh, if food means that we have a way of starting a conversation about people's cultural identities and backgrounds, and that's a good thing. Uh, but quite often we insist that it does when in fact it doesn't. Uh, and, and that's where I believe that we sometimes fall short with our culinary multiculturalism. Yes. You've uh, copped uh, an attack or two over the last few years <laughs> in, uh, in, the, in the public debate. I didn't want to go to the specifics of that because that would be breaking the rules of the Good Life podcast. But do you? Well, have I hope any... I haven't broken any rules so far, Andrew. Uh, we may have skated close to the edges. That's all right. Um, do you do you have any sort of advice for uh, for anyone stepping into a similarly public role in uh, managing those sort those sorts of attacks that come at you, where you go from uh, being in the ivory tower to being very much in uh, in the middle of the town square? I think it was a cricket match, Andrew, and and I used to play a lot of cricket. Uh, but uh, whenever I was at the crease, I made it a rule never to indulge in uh, talking back to any of the fielders or the bowlers. They could say whatever they wanted to me, but I would never engage because I understood that any sledge that came my way was designed to put me off my game or get under my skin. Um, and that was good training, I suppose, for being in a job like this. Um, and if, if I see some critics or opponents really getting personal about it, um, then I smile because it means that they want to get under my skin and it means that I'm doing something right. And I think that's the attitude that, that you've got to uh, adopt when you're at the crease. Uh, and I'm still at the crease, at least for another two months. It gets hard, though, doesn't it, when someone combines uh, 
a, a critique with, with a little bit of substance to it with a personal attack. Uh, working out how to respond to that, I, I, uh, certainly I find in my own roles a challenging one. Yeah, I think sometimes and to extend the cricket metaphor and, and hopefully uh, not at a stretch, uh, sometimes you're going to be hit. Uh, you know, uh, you, you're going to have to wear a few bruises here or there. And I think you've got to be strong enough and confident and resilient enough to know that you're not always going to get things perfect. Mm -hmm. So if some, if some of the criticisms have a bit of substance to them, uh, then you should be ready to acknowledge it or learn from it, um, at, least, at least privately or, or, or in the safety of, of your own mind. Um, and, and I think here my academic background is actually an aid as well because... Uh, as someone trained in political theory at Oxford, um, you couldn't get through your time there without being subject to very robust criticism from even your good friends and colleagues. Mm. And in fact, dishing out good criticism was the highest compliment you could pay someone. If you didn't like someone, you wouldn't bother critiquing their work because that critique might help them improve their work. Um, so, so that put me in that has put me in good stead too. I would like to think the ability to handle robust criticism and understand that not everyone's going to agree with you, but that shouldn't be the point. The, the point should be that you you will have your convictions, you will have your ideas. And you should put them forward as best you can. Um, and you would hope that that can persuade some people to change their minds. But the measure of your success should not be whether you convince absolutely everyone to your point of view. Tim, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Uh, have more courage. And to, to always back yourself uh, that... Uh, that you, that you know, as I think as a teenage boy, I knew myself pretty well, maybe even in some ways too well. Uh, but I, I I didn't always back that up in what I did or or how I carried myself. And and for me, uh, that would be my advice to just um, not not worry too much about what others might might think or worry too much about. Uh, how you might be perceived, but just be true to yourself and carry yourself with your convictions. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Uh, I was I was sceptical uh, of of, of same-sex marriage in one sense. Um, so I, I and I and I wrote about this in a column of mine when I still had a column at the Australian. I, I thought that um, civil unions could have been sufficient. Um, this was done years ago, I should, I should add, probably in 2010 or 11. Um, but my, my view changed. Um, and it changed because I, I recognised how important it was that people in same-sex relationships wanted not only a civil union, um, but also the public recognition that comes with marriage as mm, well. Mm. Um, so that's, that's something I've changed my mind on. Um, you know, I, I've written as well about income management uh, in the Northern Territory, where uh, years ago I, I said uh, income management uh, should be something that, that we should consider as part of the mix and we might need to adopt a position of tough love uh, towards Indigenous disadvantage. Um, I can now reflect on that and say that was a position I took without properly understanding the issue or hearing 
indigenous perspectives in the way that I should have before I formed that view. Um, but, uh, you know, they're just two examples. Mm. I hope I haven't broken the rules of the podcast and no, going, not, into, going into policy, but they're, 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 they're the, two, yeah. the two ones that, are, that, spring, that perhaps spring to mind. I'm yet to be convinced of the merits of Vegemite, though. <laughs> no, and your, uh, your candor there reminded me of uh, that Winston Churchill line that I have often during my career been compelled to eat my words and had invariably found it a wholesome diet. <laughs> here, here. When are you most happy? Uh, when I'm with my family. Uh, so, so uh, I think that's that's the time when I'm I'm happiest. Um, we have one we have one child who's eighteen months old, uh, and uh, and I'm never happier than when I'm with my wife and my son. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Oh, I think I've probably could have managed to be better on on uh, on the health front, at least at a physical level. So um, I've I have struggled with with uh, with keeping up the sort of uh, exercise regimen that I might have had before I took on this role um, so uh, uh, so don't play as much sport as I as I used to probably don't eat as well as I as I'd like to um, but uh, uh, ideally I would uh, uh, I would spend a, a bit more time doing physical exercise and and I think spending time with with family for me and having time to tune out by reading books or mm. watching films is the way I try and stay sane. Yeah, I'm struck by the the extent to which email and social media crowds out books and, and how much happier I am when I've, when I've read a book, particularly if it's fiction. Indeed. Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh probably um you know i i, I probably in, have indulged in my sweet tooth a bit too frequently than i should which uh, again uh, continues that theme of maybe not uh, uh, having the sort of discipline on, on my physical health as i'd like are there particular loud desserts you enjoy or uh yeah look i i i enjoy a lot of asian desserts so uh so so anything lao or chinese is 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 always good and finally, Tim, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, my parents have always shaped my view of this and they've, they've always been uh, very honest people and, 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 and sometimes, you know, honest to a fault and direct to a fault, at least in the way that they've raised me. And it goes back to what we talked about at the start uh, being open um, with with their experiences and uh, putting their confidence uh, and trust as well in, mm. in in me to 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 know that what I'm what they tell me is is something that's meant for me um, and and I think that's an important pillar of any ethical life that you've uh, got to have a certain level of honesty uh, and not only just honesty to your loved ones, but honesty to yourself. Um, so being able to know yourself, understand your flaws, your foibles, um, also being able to appreciate your strengths is an important start to being able to live an ethical existence. Tim Sudpamasan is Australia's Race Discrimination Commissioner. His uh, 
latest book is I'm Not Racist But. Tim, thanks very much for taking the time to appear on the Good Life podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.